Good morning, everyone. Good morning. That is loud. Wow. Uh, it is good to see you. I wanted to mention one thing that Bree said that really caught my attention. Um, and she just mentioned it kind of off the cuff, but I think it's actually really, really important and vital for us to understand as a community. Um, and she talked about the idea of saying, man, maybe someday I'll do X, Y, or Z. And then she realized, if I'm going to do that, I should practice it now. I should begin anticipating that God may open that door and someday. The number of people that I talk to that are intent on someday going and doing missions and yet never talk to their neighbor dumbfounds me. Because if we can't actualize the very things we are desiring to do in the present, what makes us imagine that in years later we will actually live into them? So I'd encourage you, if you're waiting to participate in something, because like someday I will, or man, maybe I'll be called, or start now. Plug in now, begin to practice it, because I think it's so, so vital. Um, so you have two guys up here with matching blue sweaters, which we <laughs> did not plan, by the way. Um, I'm a little nervous that that might be a thing that happens over the next uh, couple weeks. We are doing a little series uh, that we're pretty excited about called The, the Good Book. And uh, I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but we'll be kind of sharing the talk this morning. And, uh, and I've probably mentioned this before, but I grew up right near a Bible college and seminary. And... Uh, I went to a church that was essentially almost connected to that college and seminary. And so all throughout the halls of the church were men and women walking around carrying their Greek and Hebrew scriptures, uh, their Bible scholars and theologians and seminary professors. They taught Greek and Hebrew and uh, Old Testament studies. And, you know, I'm walking around with my illustrated children's Bible, you know, and feeling out of place and kind of awkward in this space. Uh, I actually, I kid you not, my third grade Sunday school teacher was, uh, at the time, was a uh, kind of like leading in the forefront of Old Testament archaeology. And so he would, during the summers, go over to Israel and do digs and then come back and then taught third grade. Sunday school. And I'll, I'll be honest, because he's probably not listening to the podcast, not the best of third grade Bible teachers, but exceptional, like he was an encyclopedia of knowledge, this guy was. And so that was the kind of the upbringing that I was in. And I remember walking through the halls of the church and seeing people carrying their Bibles, but they looked like Bibles that needed to be retired. Do you know what I mean? Like, they were tattered and old and beaten and kind of worn like that picture where it's like they've been in them quite a bit. They are looking at it, writing notes. I mean, the kind of book. Have you seen those Bibles before that people carry? A Bible that's it's it, like got stains all over it, but they're from tears. It's pencil marks and pen marks. Like, notes, things that they've been like praying over for years, and you begin to look at those 
uh, copies of the scripture. And, and I used to think, man, somebody should tell them that there's a sale at the local bookstore. They can replace it with a new one. But y- have you ever noticed this before when somebody has been so much in the word and knows Almost like if you ask a topic, they just like turn to the page. It just falls open to the page that talks about that topic, right? And what I've noticed is that if you switch Bibles on them, and then you're like, hey, can you find that thing? They're like, I can't find it because my notes aren't that like there's this (laughs) mystery. And they they treat this book with such reverence and awe. Uh, And then I sometimes look at the culture of today with the convenience of being able to pull out your phone and have the Bible on your phone. And I think something's lost when we can look at a device that we also read tweets and order pizza from. And the same click of the button is like, I'm going to read in Matthew is the same click that I'm like, I'm going to get pepperoni. And, (laughs) And I think we kind of lose something in the midst of that. And... Maybe we've lost a little bit of the wonder of the good book. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the good book, the scriptures. Each of these talks, if taken in isolation, will probably make little to no sense because we are hopefully going to build on each week. And uh, if you put all three together, hopefully at the end, They'll make little sense. it'll make a little <laughs> bit of sense. So that's, uh, that's our goal. Um. So one of the questions might be why uh, take a pause as a community and talk about the Bible Um, and not the and the Bible as such. So actually talking about how do we orient ourselves to the Bible? What does that mean to engage with it? Um, And the first reason is that we love it Uh, as a pastoral staff, as elders. We want new community to be a place where uh, we see weathered Bibles in pews and in people's hands and that we fall in love with the wonder and experience of entering into the scripture with, uh, with the Lord and with each other. Yeah. I think a second reason we really feel compelled to enter into this series is our culture is screaming for people who are of the book, people who are grounded in the word, people that have an orientation around the scriptures. So as the book of James says, they're not tossed to and fro by every wind of reason and thinking, but that they can be grounded and know the scriptures. Um, And what we're going to try to unpack a little bit today is this notion that the Bible is both relational and authoritative. Um, And we're going to spend our time talking about the day today because we think that's going to move us through the next few weeks. It's kind of this beginning place um, to understand what does it mean to enter into a time of praying through the Psalms or reading scripture with each other. What does that look like? What does it mean? And what we want to suggest is that it has a lot to do with relationship and a lot to do with the authority of God working through his scripture. And so that's what we're going to sort of unpack today. And that idea is going to inform the next couple of weeks. So again, this is a a series of things because we think it it matters to this community, um, but it requires a kind of slow and thoughtful unpacking, which for me, it's great because I like reading really long books and talking about them for a long time. Uh, so I apologize in advance that most likely I will not be very concise. <laughs> now, in order to get where we want to go this morning, I think it's important for us to, to think about what I have sensed is a growing question. Uh, over the last 10 years, I've seen this question come up more and more and more. I'll give you a little scenario. 
Uh, imagine someone emails me and says, hey, let's grab a coffee. We sit down at a cafe. And uh, then the question becomes, you know, I've been reading the Bible a lot lately, and I've been thinking about this idea. It's usually a theological concept, or it's a passage of scripture, or some particular thing they've been wondering about. And then they begin to say, hey, this is what I've been thinking about it, I've been reading about it, and I feel like the clear and logical and biblical answer is answer A. And I go, great. And then they say, but I came across a group of people recently who read the exact same passage and they've been studying the exact same thing and their conclusion is answer B. And then they look at me with this puzzled look on their face and then they say, so who's right? Is it me? Is it them? Which is another way of really asking whose opinion matters most is really the question. Does it, is it this scholar's opinion that matters the most or is it this one's? Is it that theologian, or is it this pastor? Is it my friend who is always in the Bible, and so it seems like they would know more than I would? Or like, and there's this wrestling with trying to figure it out. And I think what we want to suggest is maybe that approach is actually the wrong way of coming to the text. That if we come with that approach, we may not find ourselves in the places we want to be. And I want to suggest that for a couple reasons this morning. The first one is that when we come at the, the scriptures in that particular way, we make it about authority or about power rather than about relationship. So the first kind of mistake is it becomes about power rather than relationship. And what I mean by that is that we as a church have had the tendency over a long period of time of liking to abdicate responsibility to authority or to people in power. And uh, one of the ways we do that is, you know, within structures or systems of the church. But another way that we do that is often with our understanding of the Bible. And so when it comes to the scriptures, we don't necessarily approach it as uh, God speaking to us through the word. But rather, we abdicate that responsibility to people who have the right degrees, have attended the right colleges, who have been in the ministry for a period of time, that studied the languages, that holds certain occupations. And so what ends up happening is we believe that those people must be right or they must know because they studied longer in school or they must be right or they must know because they have the right degree or because they bring their Greek text to church or whatever reason. And the problem with that approach, I think, is that we begin to understand and have our orientation to the Bible not around our relationship with God and his authority, but rather our orientation is or our relationship to the scriptures is through someone else's authority. So what I mean by that is Christ is no longer the authority, but the authority has been given over to the person whose idea I most resonate with or most closely resembles my opinion. And so we make it about power rather than about relationship. And I think that tends to lead us into a place of fear. And what we mean by that is when we begin to equate the right relationship, our right relationship with Christ with the right view of Scripture, um, that's not necessarily always based on our actual experiences with God um, and with His community and with the Holy Spirit moving through and in us, um, but rather the right view of Scripture becomes shorthand for a view that I agree or that I am comfortable with um, and the people I enjoy being around. Um, 
And the more strident that we get in our convictions, um, the more likely we are to simply figure out these are the things I agree with and these are the things I no longer agree with. Um, and for the most part, that's relatively easy to figure out the things that you don't agree, that you disagree with and figure out ways to avoid that stuff. Um, we do it all the time. We can pick what we want, discard what we don't. Um, where it becomes a challenge is in authentic community. And what I mean by that is it becomes a challenge when you care about someone and you value their uh, opinions, and then all of a sudden you get into that conversation and you begin to realize, oh my goodness, we have a radical disagreement about how we understand the world, about how we understand God, about how we understand the scripture. And it's not a, a benign disagreement, you can choose this and I can choose this, but a deep, deep, totally different understanding about how things work. Um, and in those moments, if you're like me, sometimes when you realize that you have this sort of disagreement with someone that you care about, there's a sense of confusion. How, how did we get to this? How did I not notice that you would think so differently than me? And then occasionally that confusion leads to this kind of sense of betrayal, like, why, why did I not know this about you? I wouldn't be here if I did. And then if we do that enough times, what ends up happening is we're a weary of having these relationships that surprise us and that challenge us. And so um, we often spend most of our time trying to just gather ourselves around like-minded souls with people that agree with us, with people that have the same views on us. Um, but I think if we're honest, even those relationships can sometimes be pretty superficial, right? We don't push too hard because experience tells us I might not be that happy if I find out that we're in disagreement with each other. And so we keep it on the surface. Uh, we talk about only those things we can agree with, but the big, important struggles and challenges we often sort of keep inside or avoid bringing out into the open because what happens if that person doesn't agree with me? What if they see things totally different? What if they say something that creates uh, a sense of distrust and fear? Um, and so I think the idea is that sometimes our certainty can act as a shield. It protects ourselves from falling for those um, who, who would ultimately break our hearts. Um, in other words, certainty is often just another synonym for fear. So you have fear, which is born out of this power struggle with relationship. And then I think a second idea is that uh, when we approach the scriptures this way, it often kills our passion for Yahweh. And what I mean is that um, we lose some of our passion, our desire to know God. Uh, that suddenly we move into this space where um, it's as if our, our desires are strangled out. Because we're caught in a place where we begin to think questions or we begin to believe lies such as, and I've heard it even like two weeks ago I heard this, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to understand my Bible. Not true. Or I don't know that I'll ever really be able to understand God. If the primary way in which he communicates to me is through this word, how will I ever get to know him? I don't feel like I know him. And then it ultimately leads to the kind of questions where you go, what, what is the point of this anyway? And all of those lies lead to a deep insecurity. Um, we begin to talk. I'm sure many of you have experienced this, right? That we begin to uh, read the scripture and we want it to be a part of our daily practice. We want it to be part of our devotional lives. Um, but it's difficult and it's strange, right? It's this ancient book that's been translated into different languages about people with different customs and different practices. Um, 
and it seems at times so far removed from our own experience. And it becomes incredibly difficult to figure out what's going on sometimes. Um, and yet, I think for most of us, we know that throughout history, throughout time, the scripture has been the thing that the communities that follow after Jesus have gone back to. We understand that they're important. We understand that there's something special and important about the scripture. And so we want to figure out how do we work with this in our lives? How do we figure out how to make sense of it? Um, and so then we try to find inspiration or clarity from somebody else, right? So we, we read Tim Keller, we, re, we read Thomas Aquinas, we read Rob Bell, we read all these people, and we end up saying, man, I really think uh, this, this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but then we begin to realize that my view of Scripture now is really just someone's view of Scripture. And so then we feel even guilty about that. We say, no, i got to figure out what this means on my own. And so we dive back in. Um, the perfectionism of our culture often robs us of that joy. And so rather than being aware of the experience of being in the scripture with the Lord, um, with our communities, uh, we often are struck by the fact that it's not making any sense to us. And we try harder, and we set aside more time, and we try to be more diligent, and we try to be more thoughtful, and we eventually become more and more frustrated with ourselves. And many of us become really ungracious with our own practices. We, we, we no longer okay with bumbling through Psalms or Second Peter. And we feel like everything we do is wrong. And so we find ourselves in small group or in a Bible study. And the truth of the matter is we don't really get what sanctification means. We don't really understand atonement or justification or the food laws or what any of these things mean. And we're petrified when the question comes about these things. And so rather than note, hey, I have no clue what any of this means, <laughs> we remain silent and we cross our fingers. I don't know if any of you have had this experience. We cross our fingers and pray to God that somebody else will talk. Right? And they start talking and then you do that over-exuberant head nod. Right? <laughs> You're like, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I would have thought. Um, and, and we, so we live in that place, um, and pretty soon what happens is we start to sort of atrophy, right? Our sense of wonder and desire to learn gets smaller and smaller, and pretty much all we do is train ourselves to nod our heads and smile, but not to really get into these conversations about, look, I don't get what this means. I don't know why people are walking on water. I don't know why bald-headed people are sending bears out to eat children. <laughs> And some of you are laughing because you don't know what I just said, but that's in the Bible. <laughs> We're going to be up here for a couple weeks. You should know this thing about me. Oftentimes I tell myself jokes inside of my own head and I laugh at them. I apologize about that. Um, and so we end up beginning to sort of like hang on to these tiny little things, right? And we start to speak in platitudes to each other. So we say things like, hey, remember, God saves. Jesus is love. And we hang on to those little things because we're afraid we're going to lose the whole thing. And it's this little piece that we can at least try to hang on to. And those words of wisdom that have rhythms that we can remember, we speak to each other. And the whole time we sort of just become less and less curious and more and more insecure saying, how is it that I can't understand this thing that everybody tells me is so important? Mm. Everybody tells me uh, I need to understand and it's going to help me grow. Um, 
And so one of the things that Russ and I want to sort of spend time talking about is that there's a different way to orient yourself towards the Bible. There's a different way to understand its authority. Um, and it's a way that has been at the center of the Christian experience since the beginning. Um, but it's one we don't often talk about. Um, and so really the, the first question is something like this. What does it mean to experience the Bible and its authority in an authentic way? And what I might suggest is that really that question has something to do with how is it that we approach the Bible in order to experience God's authority? Right? Um, when we consider this answer, I think it's, um, it's really simple, but it's difficult. And so that's what we want to unpack. And, and I want to put it this way. The Bible is not authoritative because it is about God. The Bible is not authoritative because it is about God. The Bible is authoritative in the life of the believer because it is about, it's the place where we get to experience God doing something to us and in the world, right? Mm -hmm. The Bible is authoritative because it is about God doing something still. In other words, to say something like the Bible is authoritative, and, and often that's a question that people have and wrestle with because they're at the center of this, but to say that the Bible is authoritative has to be a statement about the triune God being authoritative, right? The Bible on its own does not save us. I'll let that sit for a second because I think that's where we saw the energetic head nodding turns like, oh. The Bible alone does not save us. And the Bible being authoritative can't be a statement about itself. It's a statement about how God works through Scripture. Right? Um, one way to sort of think about this is that throughout the New Testament in particular, we see moments where the writers of the New Testament remind us that all authority on heaven and earth is Yahweh's, mm. seen in the person of Jesus and maintained by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible itself says authority is out here. It's the triune God. Um, N.T. Wright articulates this idea this way, and I think it's really, really helpful and instructive for us. And he says, the phrase authority of Scripture can make Christian sense only if it is as a shorthand for the authority of the triune God exercised somehow through Scripture. And over the next few weeks, we're going to try to unpack the different ways in which that authority is worked out, both in our daily practice, um, in our small groups, in our sort of community life, but then also in corporate worship. Um, but today, what we really want us to start to think about is what does it mean to enter into a relationship with God through the practice of reading of Scripture? What does it mean to enter into relationship with God through the practice of reading Scripture? And that's what we want to get at. So John brings up this really significant point of authority and uh, how the Scriptures speak into our particular life. And what we want to try to do is highlight the ways in which Jesus implements or practices the very things we're trying to talk about this morning. And you notice at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, if you have your Bible, you could turn there. But in Luke 4, it'll also be on the screen. Um, in Luke 4, one of the fascinating things that happens is Jesus just gets done being in the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness, 40 days of kind of fasting and temptation and struggle and prayer. And uh, then he walks into his hometown and it says that he 
goes to Nazareth. He enters into the temple or the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath. And he goes and he sits down. And as is custom, they came to him at some point and handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And it says this, that he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says that he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And this would be a little awkward, but all the eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's a cool moment, but it was met with an interesting response. So Jesus reads a passage of scripture that they have read hundreds and hundreds of times, that they have memorized. And he says, uh, this, I just fulfilled it. This, what you just read, is about me. That I am the one that is bringing the authority to the written word. And their response is this. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. And then I had this little cool little phrase. But he passed through their midst and went on his way. And I don't, I don't know exactly what happened there in that moment, but what we recognize is this angry mob of people is ushering Jesus to the edge of town and is saying, I'm going to throw you off the cliff. Why? Because he claimed authority. Why? Because what he was doing is changing the paradigm. He's saying that you seek authority in the literal words of the text, or you seek authority in the law. You seek authority in following rules and regulations, but I'm here to tell you that the authority rests in me, that, that I'm not found just on the pages of Scripture alone, but that I'm actually found in relationship as a person, and that you can experience and know me and my authority as exercised through the scripture. And so to the people in the synagogue on that day, he said that the book is not the end. The book is simply the means to the end. That we ourselves have to be reminded that it, the book is not the authority, that he himself is the authority. He even says at one point um, in John chapter 5, this little phrase, you've heard it probably uh, many times before, but he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Or you search the scriptures because you think in them that you found the answer. Or you think that you know the right theology, or you think that you have the right interpretation. But the scriptures are here, why? To point to me. The scriptures are here, why? To give relationship with me. And so he's reorienting their understanding and the way in which they approach the scriptures. And he's giving us a picture of what it means to be people who understand the scripture is authoritative. And so even if we embrace this notion that to experience the word is to experience an encounter with Jesus, 
Um, I don't think that that will get rid of any of our confusions or challenges or things like that. Um, and in fact, um, what we might say is if we begin to approach the scripture in this way, that it uh, allows us to experience God and what God is doing still in the world um, and through his word, um, I think that we can expect a, to find a couple of things in those moments. And those two things would probably be something like this. We will have a whole lot of questions, and we'll, we will have to continue wrestling. And those may seem like unfortunate realities, uh, but I would suggest that it is only because we live in a modern world um, that places such a high value on certainty and ease of use that this is a problem for us. Mm. In other words, too many questions and too much wrestling uh, we tend to think signals that you're doing something wrong. Um, however, in the world uh, that Jesus lived in, that was actually not the case. Um, throughout Scripture, Jesus is identified as being a rabbi. And to understand at least a small part of the rabbinical tradition might be helpful here for us to think about this. So, um, one of the things that would happen in the world Jesus lived in is that young Jewish children would memorize the first part of the Hebrew Bible. And they would know it. And they would understand it. Um, or I should say they would at least be able to memorize it and, and say it back to people. Um, as they grew older, uh, and they sort of began entering into their teenage years, students would be uh, brought before rabbis to see if they could become disciples. And that process um, looked like this. The rabbi would ask the student questions about the Bible. Um, and not simply to recite passages that they had memorized. In fact, that was taken as a given, right? So this is interesting for those of us that grew up doing things where you've memorized Bible passages, right? And sword drills and things like this. Those are good because those are the things that you need in order to do something else. Mm. But they in themselves are not the thing. And so the rabbis would come to the, 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 these children and ask them questions, not simply tell me what it says here, but to go one step further and to say, tell me, how do you use this? What does this mean? How does it impact our lives? Why is it important? Why does it matter? Um, and then essentially what becomes really clear is that interpretation is essential, right? Not simply memorizing something, but to know how to use it, to know how it impacts our lives, to know how it orients us to um, the living and eternal God. Um, the rabbis uh, did not simply want students to uh, say things back to them. They wanted them to wrestle and question. Um, Rob Bell says it this way, which I think is really nice. Rabbis had no interest in having the students spit back information just for information's sake. They wanted to know if the student understood it, if he had wrestled with it. This notion is difficult for the modern mind to grasp because we generally think of education as the transmission of information. In the world of rabbinic education, the focus was on questions, which demonstrated that the student not only understood the information, but could take the information one step, um, one step further. In the world that Jesus grew up in, to know the scripture was to actively cultivate a deep relationship through your own time of study, through trusted mentors, and all of that pointed back to how we experienced Yahweh. We were required to wrestle and to ask questions. That's what it meant to be one who studied the scripture. It was assumed. And it wasn't about simply arriving at the correct interpretation or the right answer to a problem. It was something even bigger than that, right? It was something more than that. 
to question and to wrestle is simply another way of describing that we have a deep and growing relationship with the Lord. Hmm. Jesus, again, is a model of this. Uh, There's this, what I think is an often overlooked passage of Scripture, uh, where Jesus is 12 years old. And usually what happens when we think of Jesus, we think of little sweet Jesus in the manger, um, eight pounds, seven ounce baby Jesus, right? No crying. Yeah, (laughs) no crying baby Jesus, right? And then we jump and fast forward and we go, uh, now here's 33-year-old, full beard Jesus, right? And there's like nothing in between. We like skip over the prepubescent Jesus, right? Like he wasn't awkward. He had no middle school phase. There was nothing about that Jesus. And yet we have this really cool picture of Jesus at the age of 12. Now the story is told in, uh, in Luke 2 that it says this, now he, Jesus, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went about a day's journey. And, but when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Uh, after three days, a little bit of tension in the home there. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, the rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. What you see from the very beginning, the, like the really the only snapshot of Jesus other than birth and then into ministry years is a snapshot of him practicing what was just described, question asking and wrestling. Jesus shows up at the temple and he goes, you have heard it said, but I tell you, right? Or he goes, hey, I don't quite get, why do you keep talking about it this way? I imagine it more this way. And there's debate. There's struggle. There's question asking. He's essentially going to the people who claim to have the authority and saying, you might not have it exactly right. Can we talk about this? Can we dialogue? The wrestle, the struggle became the part where growth takes place. You see this in the Old Testament as well, right? One of the most profound moments in the Old Testament is when God, the pre-incarnate Jesus, wrestles with Jacob. There's this striving, this struggling, this um, exchange back and forth, and then ultimately Jacob walks away with a limp, right? He walks away changed. He walks away different, never to be the same because he wrestled with God. It's in that wrestling that we've actually carry on the tradition, that we become God wrestlers, that we become people who wrestle with the scriptures, we become people who wrestle with each other. We become people who wrestle with God, and in doing so, we're changed. There's something unique about the process that actually produces growth. Uh, there's an old adage that says, uh, two Jews, three opinions. And the idea behind that is not just that they're opinionated. The idea more than that is this, that they're okay with not knowing. They're okay with the struggle. They're okay with two people having a completely different view of the same parable. 
and dialoguing in it. And in doing so, actually growing, transforming, being deeper in relationship. I'll end with this little quote. Uh, It says, in my experience, Torah or the scriptures does not seem to carry transformative power when we simply read it. Torah truly speaks deeply and transformatively when students are invited into a deep dialogue with a text. This deep dialogue with the text seems to follow a certain process. First, people open their lives to a dialogue. Second, people work through the tension that arises out of this dialogue. So they're open to it, then tension comes. Third, people bring their own imaginative creativity to the wrestling with Torah. And fourth, this process takes place in the context of a community that embraces these values. When these four elements are present, I have been repeatedly amazed by the power and the vitality of the dialogue between life and text. What the author is getting at is this, that if we want to be people of the word, then it means we're people that are okay with the struggle, people that are okay with the questions, people that are okay with the dialogue. And it is in that that we find relationship. If a young Jewish student was someone that a rabbi wanted to take on as a disciple, um, they would simply say, come and follow me. And what's amazing and beautiful about that little phrase is that there's a character in the New Testament that says that to some folks. So if you were a young Jewish student and you did not get the call, come and follow me, you went back to your day job. You made chairs and fished. You did other kinds of things. And so what we see in Jesus' calling of the disciples is that he goes to these people who had been told, you're not the kind of folks that are capable of wrestling and asking questions of the big book. And Jesus comes to them and says, come and follow me. And I think this is a really important thing for us to understand because it does a couple of things. One, to not understand the scripture, to be confused, those are givens. Those are givens. To come and follow is a statement about saying, one, I trust that you will be able to do this. But more importantly, it's also a statement about God reaching out to us and saying, I'm going to be there. I'm going to make sense of this in the places that you can understand. And I'm going to give you the questions to ask when you won't understand. Come, follow me. One of the things I think is so interesting is that If we embrace this idea that God still works through his word in our lives and in the world, um, it changes our orientation to stuff. I often hear people say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about this, or the Bible has no clear answer on this. And certainly the Bible does not talk about nuclear proliferation, but it talks about war, and it talks about compassion, And the Bible does not talk about social media and cell phones and Facebook and Insta-tweets and Graham Twitters. (laughs) It's ridiculous because it's what we do. But it does talk about things like intimacy and not getting distracted and being disciplined. Right? The Bible is part of the world that is changing, that God is breaking into. And when he says, come and follow me, what he's saying is, come And be the kind of people that are comfortable asking questions and trying to figure out how you're going to understand the world through and in me and the kingdom that I'm bringing. 
And so one of the things that we often forget is the come and follow me sounds great because it means, hey, we get to know Jesus. But there's something that's implied in that statement. And the implication is this. To follow me is to be a people that are going to be encountering tension and questions and challenges. To follow me is going to be the kind of people that are on the margins of the kingdom pushing forward and saying, what can we imagine? What could be? And all of those things require us to know God and to be intimately connected, which means that we have to be okay with the idea that we are going to have things that we don't get, that we are going to have things that we can't figure out. That's what it means to come and follow. Not simply that you will encounter those things, but that I, the triune God, the one who created all things, the one that holds all things together, I will be there. Your curiosity is a beautiful thing. Your questions are a beautiful thing. I will be there. Um, over the next couple weeks, we want to unpack what this means even more. But it begins with this idea of saying, to believe in the authority of Scripture is to believe that the Scripture still matters in our everyday lives. Mm. That it matters in how we imagine the world to be that it gives us a blueprint, a direction, an idea, a path forward to say what will the kingdom look like when it comes in its fullest and how do we start to work towards that now. It does all of those things, but it requires that we are the kind of people that can deal with questions and tensions, that we are willing to wrestle with God. It is the most beautiful metaphor, I think, in the entire world, uh, in the Old Testament, to think that God wrestles with us and we walk away with a limp. Mm. That we have scars that we have broken fingers, that we have weird toes and goofy hairlines and messed up vision. And we have all these things that we see in the scripture that are symbols of people that have wrestled and continue to wrestle. And we have to be a community that comes in on Sundays with our tattered Bibles and our limps. And we praise God that we have the opportunity to be those kinds of folks. Mm. So what does that mean? Well, it means we got to figure out what does it mean to deal with tension and wrestling. And so next week, we're going to take up that question. And the preview is this. We have to be the kind of folks that embrace mystery. That's a little teaser for next week. <laughs> I'm excited. Um, let's, uh, let's stand. And um, each week, I, I know you know this, but I think it bears repeating uh, each week we write a little benediction um, to, it's kind of like a statement asking God to bless this community. And most of the time it is directly tied to what we've been talking about that morning. And uh, so it'll be on the screen so you can follow along with me. I'll read it and if you would just listen, this will be our closing prayer this morning. Friends, may we leave this place full of questions about ourselves, about God about the scriptures. And may we welcome these questions both in ourselves and from others for the opportunities they offer to learn, to grow, to mature, to wrestle. Let us embrace the tension of wrestling with God and may you, God, lead us to more faith and trust in you. We ask all this in the name of the Almighty God, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be blessed and have a great week.